Everyone has a favorite Christmas song, but do you ever stop and reflect what these songs' root is from the Bible? In this series of messages, the songs of Christmas, journey through these songs of praise and adoration that are in the Bible and learn more about the true meaning of Christmas. Luke chapter 1, verse number 46 will be our text today. Luke chapter 1, verse 46 to verse number 56 will be our text this morning. We've been talking about the songs of Christmas. It's been a theme that, uh, it's actually the, the series that we're in. And we've talked about uh, a couple of people, all of them out of, so far out of Luke chapter 1. We talked about Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist, and uh, how she praised the Lord when she heard she was going to have a son in her old age, John the Baptist, who would be the forerunner, the one to go before Jesus Christ. And what a blessing that was. We titled that message, Come Thou Long Expected Jesus. And then last week, we talked about John the Baptist's father, a man named Zacharias, who was a priest. He was a servant of the Lord. He loved Jesus Christ. He loved God the Father. And uh, his song of praise, which is verse number 57 through the end of the chapter, verse number 80. We talked about that last week. And what a joy that was. We called that message, Go Tell It on the Mountain. Today, I want to talk about, well, someone who you cannot uh, not talk about when it comes to the Christmas story, and that is Mary, uh, the earthly mother of Jesus Christ. And uh, we're going to talk about her found in verse number 46 through, through the end, uh, or, or through verse number 56, so for 10 verses there. Um, Mary, uh, let me say a couple of things as a precursor to this. Watching us online, here in person, let me say this. Mary is not the mother of God. Well, let me say it again. I want you to write it down. If you don't know this, we can talk about it later. I really want to answer your questions. But Mary is not the mother of God. The Bible is very clear. God hath no mother and he hath no father. He always has been. He always will be. God, the Bible says, has no beginning and no end. The Bible uses uh, these, these word pictures to help us understand his character. The book of Revelation calls him the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end, the first and the last. God, never ha- God, God has never not been and he never will not be. Let me simplify that. He's always been here, he always will be. And Jesus Christ is God. You say, well, well, who is she then? She's the earthly mother of the Christ child. No doubt, very important. No doubt, wonderful. No doubt, a beautiful lady. She's not perpetually perfect, and she was not a perpetual virgin. How do you know that? Because the Bible talks about throughout the Gospels uh, that Jesus had brothers and Jesus had sisters, There was only one, if you will, virgin birth, and that's the birth of Jesus Christ. I love seeing moms with their children. Now, I love watching new moms with their kids. By new moms, I mean like the first kid. Like how many of you remember when that first child was born, especially if you didn't have a lot of counsel or, or a German mother like I had, you were hyper-protective of that first kid. Like people will have their first child. That child won't go in the daycare. Nobody will touch that kid. They have warning signs. They actually put signs in their car that say baby on board. How many of you have ever driven safer because you saw that sign? Nobody in this room ever has driven any safer. Like, oh, baby on board. What am I supposed to do now? Get off the freeway? You're driving 50. You should get off the freeway. But we, I mean, we, we, we love that. You see a mother and she, oh, I remember when Debbie would hold Judith. Uh, Judith is our oldest daughter. Nellie is our youngest. And um, Debbie would hold Judith and, and they would talk to each other. Judith would coo to her mama and, and Debbie would, would kind of coo back and Debbie would sing to Judith and I would sit in the other room and, uh, and I would kind of watch it. Oh, that's just beautiful. That's wonderful. She's such a good mother. That's amazing. Fantastic. We were very young when we got married. Debbie was 20. I was 22. Uh, Judith came when Debbie was, uh, but right at 22, almost 22. And, uh, I mean, we were young and Debbie would, would just talk to her and visit with her. And it was beautiful. Natalie came and Debbie was like, hey, kid, how you doing? Did you sleep well? Are things all right? 
You doing okay? All right. Grab her by the hand, put her on her foot, put her on the bed. By the time the third baby comes, and we see this with some of you in our church, by the time the third baby comes, you're driving in the parking lot. You chuck that kid out of the car to a nursery worker. You're like, don't miss it. <laughs> if you do, we'll get another one. We've already got others. We'll be fine. Some families have like 10 or 12 kids. By the time kid number five comes, the parents don't even raise the kid. They just have the older kids do it. Like, they'll pull a 10-year-old into the birthing room like, hey, sweetheart, your dad and I didn't want to tell you this till right now, but you're really going to raise this kid. We'll try to make sure that you have food and clothes, but, you know, we'll give you some direction. But as soon as he's born, would you just do something with him? Love mothers. <laughs> Babies are awesome, aren't they? Well, there's no baby more wonderful than the sweet baby Jesus. None. Mary is praising the Lord in such a way that it ought to motivate and challenge us. And I'd like for us to look at this subject this morning, what child is this? You see the passage, verse number 46, the Bible says, And Mary said, My soul doth magnify the Lord, and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. For he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. For, behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things, and holy is his name. And his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. He hath showed strength with his arm. He hath scattered the proud in the imagination of their hearts. He hath put down the mighty from their seats and exalted them to low degree. He hath filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he hath sent empty away. He hath hope in his servant Israel, or helped his servant Israel, in remembrance of his mercy, as he spake to our fathers, to Abraham, and to his seed forever. And Mary abode with her, with her cousin Elizabeth, about three months, and then returned to her own house. I love the Christmas season. Uh, I, I really do the extra family time. We've taken some time at church to, to remove some things from our calendar. We don't have like this Wednesday night. We don't have community Bible study because I, I didn't want you to be away from home two nights a week, two nights this week. So, so we don't have Wednesday night Bible study. We just have Saturday night Christmas Eve service. I, I love the extra time that, that we try to spend with our family. I, I love the expressions of love. I, I love a warm house on a cold day. Now, if you're like me, I'm, I'm a little bit of a miser in principle. I have no problem paying my gas bill. But the fact that we live in Southern California, I personally, I'm just being honest with you, I don't want to turn the heater on. And I guess I'm the only one in the room. Everybody else is like, no, our heater is on all the time. I don't want to turn the heater on so my house is cold all the time. I, I have no problem saying to, De to Debbie, and she's always cold. She's like, it's so cold in here. I'm like, listen, the heaters sit to 57 degrees. It's not that cold. Grab another blanket. She's like, my nose is cold. Well, I don't cover your nose up. She's like, my eyes are cold. Close them. My mouth is cold. Close it. It would help our nights. I'm teasing. We, we did turn the heater on. I think it was Friday night. It was a nice night. Natalie came out of her igloo, and we fellowshiped together, and we had a good time. I mean, I, but just in principle, when you grow up in a cold part of the world, you know, it's uh, 57 degrees. It's warm. I remember. You, you grow up in eastern Washington. Man, you're outside in shorts and a T-shirt in January if it's 57 degrees. So that's just my thinking. Why are we paying for gas? This just reminds us of our childhood. My wife reminds me that she was raised in southern in Bakersfield and she's like it's not it wasn't this cold and so I, I I love the warm house on a cold night I love the the smell of of the Christmas season the the pine scent that you put because we don't live near pine trees that you put in your oil diffuser um I love the smell of cookies turkey I love all of those things Christmas is just a lot of fun but the depth of Mary's joy had nothing to do with decorations. It had nothing to do with cookies or presents with her name on it under a tree. 
For her, it was about God's faithfulness to provide himself as the promised Messiah, the Savior of the world. Mary's song that we will read or that we read contains quotations from the Old Testament drawing heavily from the book of Psalms and and the song of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapter 2 verses 1 to 10. Mary hid God's word in her heart and turned it into a song. It was her understanding of God's promises in the past that gave her joy in the present Without prompting, she said in verse number 46, my soul doth magnify the Lord and my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. He hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden for behold, from henceforth all generations shall call me blessed. I want you to notice this morning that Mary understood the mindfulness of God. Mary understood the mindfulness of God. Verse number 48, she says, he hath regarded the lowest state of his handmaiden. She was speaking of God's mindfulness. He saw the the lowest state. It's a testimony of her personal humility. Mary understood she was undeserving of this position. She understood that that she should not even be considered for this position. God uh, has regarded, God has paid attention to, God has turned his light or his mind toward me. That's what she's talking about. God's regarded my lowest state. All throughout the Old Testament, God had promised to come. God had uh, promised that, that he would come and that a virgin would conceive and bring forth a child and we'd call his name Jesus. I mean, this is the promise of the Old Testament prophets. The Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming, the Messiah is coming. And then when the the angel came and told Mary that the Messiah would come and that she would be the earthly mother of the Christ child, man, Mary was overwhelmed that God would regard her or consider her, her in her lowest state. And it brought great joy. The mindfulness of God brought tremendous joy to Maria, Maria, Mary's life. The depth of your joy this Christmas season is connected to the degree of your understanding and its meaning. The depth of your joy this season is connected to the degree of your understanding and its meaning. I love when people say, Christmas isn't about me. I I buy presents for the kids and I try to care for other people. And let me tell you, that's a wonderful thing and that's a good attitude and we appreciate that attitude. But this season isn't even about you getting gifts for other people or you you, uh, not taking anything for yourself. This season is a celebration of the birth of Jesus Christ. And your joy this season is connected to the degree of your understanding of its meaning. Well, what do you mean? Well, if Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that changes everything. And friends, he was born of a virgin. And that's more sure than me standing here. He was born of a virgin. And he was born to live, to die, that you and I might have eternal life. Mary understood the mindfulness of God. There's not anyone of us here this morning who doesn't appreciate a Christmas gift. We all appreciate them. But to be honest with you, I've, I've got to the point in my life where I don't need anything. Matter of fact, there's not many things that I want. My sister, God's blessed financially, and if I want something, I'm kind of able to get it. Like, like most of you here this morning, like, like if you really need or want something, it's like, yeah, I, I, could, I, could, I guess I could just go do that. My sister Gloria working over in our children's ministry sent me a text yesterday and she said, hey, is, is there anything that you want uh, for Christmas? Uh, she goes, maybe a book or some workout equipment or something. And, and I'm like, workout equipment? Like, okay. Uh, I want 600 pounds of bumper plates. Um, 
I wasn't sure how to respond to that. And I responded back like, no. She's like, well, well I need to get you something. What do you want? And I, I started thinking, and I, and I hate this. I mean, some of you are like this, I'm sure. And you're like, I, I just don't know what I need. And I thought, oh, you know what I need? I, need? I think I need some new pruning shears for my garden. Or I don't really have a garden. I have like a, fl- a couple flowers that I take care of occasionally. And... <laughs> But maybe if I had pruning shears, I'd do it more often, you know? And I have some pruning shears, but I found them somewhere. And I think probably if I had better ones, they would actually work better. Because I have those pruning shears, like when you use them, it like cuts through half of the branch, and then you have to yank the other half off. I mean, you know what I'm talking about. Like I, I, I bought them at Harbor Freight. And um, I didn't buy them. The person that bought them and it fell out of their truck bought them at Harbor Freight, I should say. And I, so I wrote back, I said, maybe pruning shears. And I said, I, I also really like bonsai trees. And I told my daughters I like bonsai trees, and I really do, ever since watching Karate Kid. Um, when it originally came out, none of the stupid reruns that aren't nearly as good. Uh, I'm, I'm teasing about those. But uh, I've always liked bonsai trees. And my daughter's like, Dad, you kill bonsai trees. Every time you get one, they die, which is true. I have a graveyard in my backyard of bonsai trees. And, and, uh, and I said, yeah, but I'm going to eventually, you know, one's going to survive eventually. So I put on their bonsai trees. And this is what I need in my life. Pruning shears in a bonsai tree? Let me just stop and say, I'm a blessed man. That's really what I need. The other day, I thought I might need new socks, and then I did laundry. <clears throat> I don't even need those. More than pruning shears in a bonsai tree, what meant the world to me is that my much older sister would think about me. Would think enough to ask, hey, what can I get you? Just to think. I'm to really the point in life where it's like, it is the thought that counts. It really is. It means the world to me. And that's what Mary is saying. God regarded my low estate. God knows me. You say, well, pastor, I don't want this to be like um, this idea that sometimes we have in church that it's all about me and we need to center on me and my feelings. And folks, I don't want to center on that either. And, and, and let me tell you, that is a ditch that is very, very common in American Christendom today. No doubt about it, that, that church is all about me and God is all about me and the whole world is all about me. And we have not if I could say it this way, we have not helped the self-centeredness of America at all by preaching that living for Jesus is all about me. It's not all about you. And that's a ditch that is very big and very deep in our world right now. But there's another ditch over here. And this ditch is to say that God doesn't think about me. No, he does think about me and he does love me and he is mindful of me and he does care about my needs. And he does have concern for me as an individual. I don't want living for Jesus to be all about me, but make no mistake, he cares about you. Ephesians chapter 1, verse number 4, the Bible says, according as he hath chosen us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and without blame before him in love. Here's what Ephesians is saying, that before the world was ever created, God's design for your life as a believer is that you would live a holy, righteous life before the world was ever created. Before the world was ever created, he chose you uh, according to, to live a holy life before the world was ever created. Before the world was ever created, God saw you and, and God loved you. He knew your need for him. And he determined to come to you because he was mindful of you and he was mindful of me. He was mindful of humanity. Probably the most common verse in the Bible is John 3, 16. God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believeth in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Who did God love? The world. What are you a part of? The world. 
well, somebody said, well, God just was thinking of the world in a general collective term. No, no, not at all. God is thinking very specifically of you and me. Jesus loves me and he loves you. As a kid, we used to sing the song and our kids still sing it because I love it. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. They are weak. He is strong. You know what I found? Jesus loves me. This I know. For the Bible tells me so. Big ones to him belong. We are weak. He is strong. He is mindful of us. And he has been. Revelation chapter 13, verse number eight says this, that Jesus was the lamb slain for you and me before the foundation of the world. We see the mindfulness of God towards Mary. We see the might of God in verse number 49. For he that is mighty hath done to me great things and holy is his name. Mary knew at this point that Jesus would be born a baby. He'd be all man, he'd be all God. We theologians call that the hypostatic union, the marriage or the unification of the manhood of Christ and the deity of Christ. In his body, this baby Jesus would, God, Jesus would limit himself in some areas. He would need to be fed just like your baby needed to be, or just like the babies in our nursery would need to be. He would needed to have his diaper changed. He would need to sleep. He would be cuddled with. He would be clothed. His parents would care for his needs. But Mary understood this about the Christ child even as she was doing those wonderful things that every mother cherishes and misses as her children move stages of life. Mary knew that this child is the all-powerful God of the universe. The all-powerful God of of the universe. Matter of fact, there's eight times in our passage this morning that Mary uses the expression, he hath. In verse number 48, he hath regarded my low estate. In verse number 49, he that is mighty hath done to me great things. In verse number 51, it says it twice, 52, 53 twice, and 54. It was as though she is saying, let me tell you how mighty God is. He can do anything. And he's mighty. He's strong. That's what the word means. Powerful. Able. Here specifically it means he's the almighty. This is not to be lost. We represent the manger with this little manger that is here. But the baby that sat in the manger in Bethlehem in that night air after Mary gave birth to him was not a, a helpless little baby. No, he is the mighty God. Isaiah chapter 9, verse number 6, the Bible says, For unto us a child is born, unto us a son is given. The government shall be upon his shoulders, and his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor. Notice, the mighty God. This baby is the mighty God. Not only was Jesus born a king, but Jesus was born mighty. Babies aren't born mighty. I've never feared a three-week-old. Babies aren't born mighty. They're born needy and dependent. Richard I, called Richard the Lionheart, was born a weak baby, one of the considered to be top 10 warriors of all time. Spartacus, it was a helpless baby. Lieutenant Audie Murphy, the most decorated Allied soldier in the Second World War, was born a defenseless baby. 
Chinese general Sun Tzu was a fragile baby. Leonidas I, known for the Battle of Tripoli and, and, and what those soldiers did as they defeated the 300, defeated the, the masses of troops that came in. And Leonidas I uh, uh, organized that and fought and fought to the death. He was not born mighty. He was born dependent. Alexander the Great, arguably the greatest general of all time was born vulnerable. Jesus Christ wasn't born weak. He wasn't born helpless. He was anything but defenseless or fragile. He was dependent on his father God, but not on his earthly mother Mary. Why? Because he is, as Isaiah 9, 6 says, the mighty God. This child was born mighty. Make no mistake, Oh, just this baby Jesus, just so soft and cuddly. I just, I just wish I could just hold on to him and, and just squeeze him till everything comes out of him. He wasn't a helpless little baby. Church got me a dog for my 50th birthday. Her name's Molly Joy, and she does bring us a lot of joy. She's the softest dog in human history. Never felt a dog that soft. I don't mean soft like weak soft. She thinks she's got a lion heart until somebody scares her. And then she, she, she runs like nobody's business. Um, but there's just times when, when I just am so, having so much fun with that dog. I just want to grab her and just squeeze her till an eye pops out. By the way, let me stop here right now and tell you this. You can't do that with a cat. Those of you that like cats, go home and squeeze your cat. See what happens. You'll have an eye pop out. You'll be coming in, Pastor, would you pray a prayer of healing? No, I'll pray a prayer that you'll stop being stupid and get rid of that violent creature out of your house that wants to eat your body alive. That cat would pull your eye out and like take it to the neighborhood cats and go, bro, I finally got one. That had nothing to do with the message. That was just helpful wisdom by the man of God. I'm teasing on both those fronts. I'm teasing. If you like cats, we'll pray for you. I love that dog. I just, oh, but she is so absolutely vulnerable. She doesn't know she's vulnerable, but let me tell you, she's vulnerable on every single level. 12 pounds of vulnerability running around my house, acting all bad till I raise my voice to her. And she goes cowering. No, no, understand this about Jesus Christ. Mighty. Not defenseless. Not fragile. With the word of his mouth. I wonder, I just wonder, the host of heaven that were guarding the Christ child. You think somebody would come? You think Herod with all of his armies could come and touch that baby? Now, God in his province led Joseph and Mary later to go to Egypt. But let me tell you, had God hadn't done that, God with the word of his mouth would have destroyed Herod and every single Roman soldier that he brought. They couldn't have come within a a thousand feet of Jesus Christ with their threatening spears and swords and arrows and bows. He's mighty. The God who saved you is not some weak little trepid God that sat on the sidelines hoping for some means to help you. He knew that he would die for you. He is the mighty God, which reminds us at times of salvation that Jesus was was not someone who had no alternative. Oh, he could have called on his father and a legion of angels, 10,000 angels could have come and literally taking, destroyed the entirety of the world. He is that mighty and he could have fellowshiped with his father, but he is also so mighty that he went to the cross of Calvary to die for your sin and mine, displaying and demonstrating what we find in verse 50 and verse 54, the mercy of God. When the Bible says, and his mercy is on them that fear him from generation to generation. Verse number 54, he hath hope in his servant or helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his 
mercy. This is the third song we've looked at, Elizabeth, Zacharias, now Mary. Every single one of them talk about the mercy of God. Mercy, we say it this way because grace and mercy are are two sides of the same coin. Grace is giving something to someone who doesn't deserve it. Grace, by grace we are saved. We are given something we do not deserve. Grace is giving something to someone they do not deserve. Mercy is withholding punishment or judgment from someone who has earned it. Mercy is an incredible concept in scripture. So we wonder who needs mercy? Mary knew that we all needed mercy. You see, because of our sin, we deserve to be separated from God for all eternity in a place called hell. But Jesus came that Christmas morning some 2,000 years ago to be born, live, and die so that we could have eternal life. And some people like to say, certain churches like to say, certain denominations like to say that Mary was perfect. But Mary said in verse number 47, she says, my spirit hath rejoiced in God my Savior. Perfect people don't need to be saved. Mary needed a Savior. And if you have your Bible this morning, you know that's a capital S and that's a word-defining defining deity. Some people, or, or we need to understand that Mary was not perfect. She was not sinless. She was blessed, no doubt about it, for sure. But she still needed a Savior. Why? Because all mankind is born a sinner. One commentator said this about verse number 47. If God were not, I'm sorry about verse number 50. If God were not a saving, redeeming, forgiving God, people might dread him and attempt to pacify or appease him, but not worship him. Mary knew that the coming of the Messiah marked the apex of the redemptive history. Her son would save his people from their sins. Because the purpose of his coming was to seek and to save that which was lost. The thrilling reality that through her the Messiah would be born into the world prompted Mary to praise and worship her Redeemer. Mary needed a Savior. Just like us. And we just like she. Let me share the message of salvation that Christ left for us. The Bible says in the book of Romans chapter 3, verse number 10, as it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. We know from our study of of Hebrew writers or the way people would write in Hebrew and Hebrew grammar, that is that when a person made a double statement, it was like drawing an exclamation point. They're giving special attention to the to the point that they're making. And Paul, who is writing Romans, says there's no one righteous. No, not one. It, it's, it's in some ways like he's yelling it from the rooftop. No one is in right standing with God. And that's true of Mary. No one's in right standing with God. Not a single person on the planet. Paul would add later in that same chapter, chapter 3, verse number 23, where the Bible says, for all have sinned. We've, we've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. The phrase come short means to miss the mark. God has a standard of perfection. And everyone has missed it. You've missed it. You say, well, well, I don't know if, if, if I'm included in that all. Maybe it's all people in Paul's day or all people in the 60s or all people that ever wore bell bottoms, but maybe it's not me. No, the word all there is the Greek word pos, and it means all men everywhere for all time. For all men everywhere or all of mankind everywhere have sinned and come short of the glory of God. Simply put, we miss the mark. But we also know that God loves us. 
Romans chapter 5, verse number 8, the Bible says, But God commendeth his love toward us, and that while we were yet sinners, while we were still sinning, while we rejected God, while we went our own way, did our own thing, while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. Hey, would you come to grips with this reality? Jesus loves you and he died for you. Let me say it again. Jesus loves you and he died for you. He died for you. Well, my sin is so bad. No, no, no. Jesus died for you. Jesus doesn't know me. No, no. He's regarded you. You're not here by accident. He died for you. Jesus Christ loves you and he died for you. Even though you're a sinner, Jesus died for you because he loves you. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6, verse number 23, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The word wage simply means what you and I understand it to mean, what you earn for what you've done. What you earn for the sin that you've done is death. And it's a physical death. People die. Christians die. But it's a spiritual death where we're separated from God. And it's an eternal death where we spend eternity in hell, which was created for the devil and his angels and not for people to go to. People only go to hell if they reject Jesus Christ. But they go if they do. The wages of sin is death, but the gift of God, the gift that God gives you is eternal life through the person of Jesus Christ. Listen to me clearly. The words in this verse are not, are not accidental. What you earn for salvation or what you earn for sin is death, but God's given you a gift and you cannot work for a gift. Next Sunday morning, before or after church, I don't know when you'll do it, maybe Saturday night, people do it at different times, but you'll give gifts to one another. You'll give gifts to people. Hopefully, unless you're really weird, you're going to give a gift to somebody and you're not going to make them do something for it. Like, hey, honey, I got this for you, but before you can do it, could you go make me some food? I mean, I'll give you the gift if you give me some coffee. That's a wage. But the gift, all that has to happen for a gift to be utilized is if the gift is received. And the Bible says that the gift of God is eternal life. Many of you are here today, you've not accepted the free gift of eternal life that comes from Jesus Christ alone. Well, pastor, what do I have to do to receive this gift? Romans chapter 10, verse number nine says this, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in thine heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Let's work with those in reverse order. You'll be saved, have heaven as your home if you believe in your heart and your mouth confesses what is already in your heart. Confession is not simply words. That's why you can't force people to believe. Some religions in the world will threaten people. If you believe anything other than what we believe, we'll take your house, we'll abuse your family, uh, we'll even kill you. You better confess and, and say that you believe. Hey, they could, they could say that all day long, but you can't change the heart of an individual. It's an old saying, a man convinced against his will is of the same opinion still. We can't talk you into, we can't manipulate you to believing in Jesus Christ. But let me tell you, on the authority of the Bible, there is more than enough evidence to prove that Jesus Christ is the Messiah, that Jesus Christ was born of a virgin, that Jesus Christ lived a perfect and holy life, that Jesus Christ at the age of 33 years old was put on a cross, that all of the sin for all time was poured on the person of Jesus Christ as he hung on the cross, that his blood was spilt for you and washes away all our sin, and that if you will believe that and confess it, the Bible says that you'll be saved. Verse number 10, the Bible says this of Romans 10, 9, and 10, for with the heart man believeth unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession 
is made unto salvation. God is literally telling us in his word that if we simply admit to Jesus our need for forgiveness of sin, understanding that he alone as the son of God can save us and save the world and do it from our heart, he says, thou shalt be saved. The passage in Romans chapter 10 goes on to say in verse number 13, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Whoever. Whoever. It doesn't matter where you're from. You can be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done. You can be saved. It doesn't matter how much money you have. You can be saved. Your education level doesn't matter. You can be saved. The color of your skin doesn't matter. You can be saved. Whether you serve in the military or not, doesn't matter. You can be saved. Whether you're an American citizen or not, doesn't matter. You can be saved. Whether or not you've ever flown on an airplane or not, doesn't matter. You can be saved. Whether you like turkey or ham at Christmas, doesn't matter. You can be saved. Whether you like in and out or good food, doesn't matter. You can be saved. Whether you're an iPhone or a bad phone lover, you can be saved. It doesn't matter what you've done. It doesn't matter where you've been. It doesn't matter what you used to believe. If you will confess with your mouth and believe in your heart that Jesus is the Son of God, that Jesus died for your sin, and that Jesus is the only way to heaven, and that he died, rose again the third day, if you will believe that, you can be saved. Nothing else matters. You can be saved. And if you reject that, you'll spend eternity separated from God in a place called hell. But the mercy of God, the Bible says in the book of Lamentations, chapter 3, verse 22, it's of the Lord's mercies that we are not consumed because his compassions fail not. They are new every morning. Great is thy faithfulness. The reason that you're here to hear the gospel again is because the mercy of God is being demonstrated in your life over and over and over and over again. Here's where some of you are at. You believe that Jesus is the son of God. You believe that he was born of a virgin. You believe that he lived a perfect life. You believe that he died on a cross for your sins. You believe that he was buried in a borrowed tomb. You believe that three days later he rose out of that tomb, demonstrating his power over death and hell and the grave. You believe all of that, but you're not saved. Why? Because you have yet to confess or yet to put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. You believe, but you don't trust. You've never stepped over the line. You're 92.75% of the way there. But you've never crossed, oh, I believe all those things. I know he can save me. I know he would save me. I have no doubt about any of that. I, I fully believe he is the son of God. I fully believe that he died for my sin. I fully believe that he was buried. I fully believe that, that he rose from the grave. And somebody might want to say, well, if they believe all that, they're good. No, no, no. With the mouth confession, confession is a statement or a word that describes absolute surrender to that belief. I can believe in something without putting my faith and trust in it. 10 years ago, for our church's 10th anniversary, the church got together and they sent Debbie and I to the big island of Hawaii. And it was awesome. We loved it. It was really windy and really beautiful. And in our marriage, I'm kind of the fun one on some things, and Debbie's kind of the fun one on some things, and so it's a, it's a, it's a good balance as a general rule. Well, 
Debbie said, hey, I want to do something while we're in Hawaii. And unbeknownst to me and not thinking about it, I was just trying to be a good husband. I said, you name it, we're doing it as long as we're not jumping out of an airplane. Because no sane person would ever jump out of a perfectly good airplane. Now, if you want to do that, please do it. Don't show me the pictures because I'll get altitude sickness. So Debbie said, yeah, I don't want to jump out of an airplane. This is what she said. She said, I want to go zip lining. And she said, I want to go zip lining. And the Big Island of Hawaii at the time had the largest zip line in the world. It was like three quarters of a mile. I don't know if it's still the largest, but it was like three quarters of a mile. And it was like seven different zip lines and all this stuff. And she's, you know, really talking me up. And, and I'm just telling you, I believed with all of my heart that that zip line could hold me. I believed the, I, I kind of believed the harness could hold me. Uh, I believed that it was a good thing to do. And I relatively believed that I was going to be safe. But can I tell you, I never put my faith and trust in the zip line. You say, did you go zip lining? Yes. Why? Because Debbie told me that she would leave me if I didn't, which would have killed me anyway. I'm kidding. She didn't say that. You can believe everything without putting your faith in it about Jesus Christ. And that's where some of you are today. Some of you are here, I believe everything that Jesus claimed to be, but I know that if I put my faith and trust in Jesus Christ, then my life is going to change and there's some sins that I'm doing that I don't want to do or or that I don't want to give up and I'm just not ready to put my faith and trust in him. He said, how do you know that? Because those are the reasons people in the Bible don't accept Jesus Christ. You're no different than they. He died for you. His mercies are new. And they're new every morning. Over and over and over again. Well, well, when will his mercy be dried up? I don't know, but at some point it does. At some point his, his, his mercy is over. Well, when's it over? It's over when we die. If we don't know Christ. And then we face judgment. And dear brother or sister, the Christmas story is not simply a story about a baby being born and giving us warm, fuzzy feelings. The Christmas story is a story to remind us of our need for a Savior and our need to trust in Jesus Christ and to do that today. Today. I titled this message, What Child Is This? A classic Christmas carol written in 1865 by William Chatterton Dix. Dix was the son of a, spur, of a surgeon in Bristol, England. He spent most of his life as a businessman working as a manager at a maritime insurance company in Glasgow, Scotland. He did very well. While managing that insurance company, he was suddenly struck by a very, very critical illness that nearly took his life. While recovering from the illness, he experienced a revival that led him to write several hymns, including the song, What Child Is This? The lyrics of the carol came from a poem that he wrote entitled, The Manger Throne. The part of the poem that was utilized for the song's lyrics consists of three stanzas in total. And the first verse poses a rhetorical question in the first half with the responding coming in the second half. The second verse contains another question that is answered, while the final verse is a universal appeal for everyone to accept Christ as their Savior. And I appeal to you, I plead with you, to accept Christ as Savior. Some of you have been coming for months and months and months, and you've discovered the truth but you've not put your faith in Christ. And I appeal to you as someone who loves you and prays for you to put your faith in Christ. Not simply come to a good church. Not simply hear things that are helpful for you and your family. We want to do that. But the appeal this morning is for you to come to Christ. What child is this? who lay to rest on Mary's lap is sleeping. He's the son of God. He's the savior of the world. Well, yeah, 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 pastor. That's why we're here. We're we're here to kind of celebrate the Christmas story. The Christmas story is the salvation story. 
Come to Jesus today. Like I'd have all my questions answers, answered. You'll never have them all answered. It requires salvation, demands faith. It demands faith. It requires faith. Without faith, it is impossible to please him. For he that cometh to God must believe that he is, the Bible says, and that he is a rewarder of them that diligently seek him. It doesn't mean we can't answer questions. We want to answer. And we have, questions, we have answers to your questions, no doubt. But don't think that if you get all the knowledge in the world that you'll accept Christ until you humble yourself by faith to the Christ child. And our appeal for you is to trust Jesus because we would hate it if you spent eternity in hell separated from God, knowing the truth, but never surrendering. What child is this Thank you for listening. Hear more messages today at CanyonRidgeBaptist.com. If you're in the San Diego area, please join us for a service. We meet on Sundays at 8.30 a.m., 10.30 a.m., and 5 o'clock p.m. Pacific Time.